Hey, B. Yes? Have you heard? Heard what? Winter is coming. Oh my god. Is Game of Thrones coming back? Are they redoing season eight? No, just regular winter. Oh. I'm going to need two things then. Warm feet and coffee in my belly. I think I got just the thing for you. Oh yeah? Yeah. We've got some amazing partnerships with two companies, Smartass Undies and Cafe Hacienda Rio. Smartass Undies is a small business committed to saving the planet and your mindset. They're engineered from recycled materials to produce sustainable and super comfy underwear and socks. Motivation is perishable and needs refreshing every day, just like your undies and socks. Every time I look down at my feet, I see words like gratitude and self-discipline and integrity, and it just keeps me going. Tell them about the coffee, Dante. Oh, I've got coffee for you. Cafe Hacienda Real Coffee from Costa Rica. This micro roastery is just outside of San Jose. We found it a couple of years ago when we were in Costa Rica. They small batch roast a custom blend of pea berry and Arabica beans. You can pick your roast type and whether or not you want it ground or whole bean. And then they will ship to order exactly what you want. Now we've got a couple of offer codes for our listeners for Smartass Undies. We have links in the show notes to get to the website. And when you, once you get there, you're going to use the code CHEATINGONFEAR10 for 10% off your order. And for the Hacienda Real Coffee, you're going to go to goldenbean.net and use the promo code COFCHR20 for 10% off your order. Kick Winter's ass. special episode this week. Mm-hmm. This week we are speaking with Dr. Wednesday Martin and we have mentioned her several times. Yes, if you if you go on the Things We Love page, you will see her book Untrue mentioned several times Yes, over several episodes. And the reason that it gets mentioned so often is it was a game changer for me. Uh, up until recently, most research on sexual desire libido was about men yeah and the the traditional wisdom was that women just didn't have sex drives as high as men they just didn't you know they were the demure sex or that it was natural for desire to just wane over time yeah and and that and that you know women just didn't like sex as much as men but it turns out they were just measuring it against the wrong metric (laughs) so so it was a big deal when uh untrue came out and i read that and we've been a big fan of her of hers on the podcast yeah and she is a cultural anthropologist cultural critic new york times best-selling author yeah and she's also a podcast host yep and we were really thrilled to get her on the podcast. And here's the crazy thing is that we had all kinds of questions mm-hmm. all set up mm-hmm. to talk with her about. And then all hell broke loose. In the U.S.? In the U.S. Yeah. And so we 
had a unique opportunity to speak with her about everything that happened and get her take on all of that. While and it was still fresh. Yes. Yeah. So enjoy this very important episode. Enjoy, everyone. And we are welcoming Dr. Wednesday Martin. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We're so excited. I'm excited to be here. Thank you guys <laughs> for having me. Oh, it's 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 an honor to have you on the show, Dr. Martin. Mm-hmm. What a crazy moment. Right? This is where I think we should start. Yeah, I, I think so. We had some scheduling mishaps. And so originally we were going to talk, I was going to ask you about the election. And right. <laughs> and and <laughs> I think, you know, based on what point we are in time, I would really like to start with getting your thoughts on what's transpired over the last couple of days. Cause you know, we're both in Canada. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we're really, we're really so interested lucky. to see. Well, <laughs> you know what? It's not, it's not, there's no smugness ab- about that because we're very close uh-huh. and we have a lot of friends and, you know, a lot of skin in the game. So, and, and right. we're just, we're concerned for yeah. what's going on south of, right, the, right. of the border. The coup. You know, I mean, you, let's call it that's what, what it is. It is. It's an attempted coup, and the evidence is coming in that at the highest levels, including the Department of Defense and the president himself, there is evidence accruing that there was knowledge that it was planned mm-hmm. insofar as Donald Trump and his White House are capable of planning this thing. <laughs> um, but we, we at least know that at high levels, people were discouraging the uh, governor of Maryland, right, who was contacted by representatives yep. who were hiding in their offices. And he was asked, please send the national, the Maryland National yeah. Guard immediately. Mm-hmm. And a very recent news point is that the Department of Defense, it looks like, prevented um, the Maryland National Guard from being on the ground for at least 90 minutes. So the first thing that I want to say about this is, and I know I'm preaching to the choir, (laughs) but when you're a social scientist and a cultural critic, you look to your training to help you understand these things. And so my view is kind of the long view and the high up in the sky view Mm -hmm. uh, that cultural anthropology and primatology have given me. But I also have a more kind of on the ground view because I was, I was trained as an intersectional feminist cultural critic. You know, I was at Yale when Kimberly Crenshaw was around the time that she was coining the term intersectionality. Mm -hmm. And I was there when bell hooks was there and I was lucky to study with some black feminist cultural critics who kind of helped form my worldview uh, in really helpful, uh, rigorous ways. So that's kind of just telling people how I'm coming at this. To me, the only surprise and the most goading thing other than narcissists dragging democracy through the dirt, (laughs) because obviously that's the most upsetting thing. But another extremely goading thing is the surprise from media, Mm. from voters, you know, from the man in the street, the the shock and surprise that people are expressing that this is happening. This coup was an event written long in time. I mean, not in anthropological terms, but Mm. for four years, Mm -hmm. we could have predicted this. And I 
you know, have said, if you can't connect the dots between the abusive, sexually harassing, criminal real estate developer in New York City to the utterly vacuous, sadistic host of a reality show <laughs> to the way this man stalked Hillary Clinton, one of the most qualified candidates we've ever, ever had yep. uh, run for president in our country to the separation, the forcible separation of children from their families at the border with Mexico mm. to this coup. What kind of journalist are you? Mm. Uh, you're certainly not one who has uh, studied history. So Trump told us from the very beginning, yep. he told us from his campaign who he was. Mm -hmm. And uh, we should know whether our lens is social psychology, psychoanalysis, or we're just a person who reads the newspaper. We should all have expected this. Mm -hmm. Granted, it is extraordinary uh, when the president commits acts of sedition so blatantly, but no, it's not. This is a man who said, fuck the Geneva Convention, excuse me. Uh, we're going to separate children from their parents, even yeah. though it's torture, literally torture. You know, fuck what you're supposed to do uh, when you're doing a presidential debate. I'm going to literally stalk Hillary Clinton <laughs> around, the stage. Uh, on the, around the stage and <laughs> yeah. demean her and harass her and demonstrate what my M.O. has always been and what the M.O. of my presidency will be in terms of how we treat uh, women and other people who are disenfranchised. Mm -hmm even more disenfranchised than than white women. Plenty of people are more disenfranchised than white women. So he has shown us exactly how this would go down. Nobody should be surprised. And I'm frankly tired of people expressing surprise. I understand the outrage, but I don't understand the surprise. It's disingenuous. So there's that aspect of it. The other thing is that through the lens of anthropology, <laughs> the high up in the sky view of this is that we live in a patrilineal, patrilocal setting. We don't live, uh, and, and we know that patrilineal, patrilocal settings very often lead to not just women being enfranchised, but anybody who is not the patriarch at the mm -hmm. top, right? The circle mm -hmm. of patriarchs is very, very small. Mm -hmm. That is one of the ways that I look at what's happening in a way, uh, this is a logical extension, not just of, you know, Trump telling us who he is, but Trump playing on and leveraging the patrilineal, patrilocal, ecological setting in which he found himself. Mm -hmm. A hopeful thing to say is I remember interviewing the philosopher Carrie Jenkins, the author of What Love Is and What It Could Be. She calls herself like uh, she calls herself philosophy's crazy ex-girlfriend. <laughs> she, she's been really mistreated and quite, yeah, quite abused by academic philosophy as a discourse and as a as a culture because she dared write about being polyamorous. And write about it, you know, through the lens of philosophy. People just thought that was, you know, gone way too far. Step too far, clutching Step the pearls. Far. Like <laughs> it's okay to be a slut, but to try to legitimize your sluttery with philosophy, how dare you? She's <laughs> she's brilliant. And I had the very good luck to interview her for my book on true. When I believe it was while Hillary Clinton was running for president and everything had gone down 
with Leslie Jones. I don't know if you guys mm. remember this. Yes, but, we do, yeah. Uh, okay, so a feature film of Ghostbusters came out, a remake with all women. And white men in the United States lost their minds, right? <laughs> you would have thought that ghost busting was an actual job like coal mining that people could do it. <laughs> and that women were actually taking it away from men, right? Yeah. right? Yeah. And it was this crazy passion play. And Leslie Jones, to her great credit, stepped into the fray and basically said, you guys, this is a movie yeah. about, a, about, about a made up job, <laughs> about a made up job. And uh, she was savaged. She was utterly savaged. On I believe Twitter. she quit. She, she quit Twitter over it. She did. She stepped away from Twitter for mm-hmm. a while, which was a real loss for everyone because yes. her Twitter feed is fire, funny and inspired <laughs> and educational. And she's a very important cultural critic in the U S and I had the great good luck of speaking to Carrie Jenkins at that moment in American history when the racism and misogyny and the links between the two of them were so evident. And Carrie was at the time taking a lot of heat for her writing still and getting terrible direct messages from strangers, but also uh, being quite harassed, as I said, within academic philosophy. And I said, Carrie, help how are you reading all this? And she said, Wednesday, on my most hopeful days, I see what happened to me, what's happening to Leslie Jones, what's happening to Hillary Clinton. On my best days, I see this as an extinction event. Hmm. And I am hoping that, I believe I spoke to her before Trump had won, but basically what she said in my paraphrase is, I believe that a Trump presidency on my best days i look at it as a supernova mm-hmm. that absolutely is it its fieriest most superheated massive and powerful precisely before it collapses and right. <laughs> so i have tried to keep the metaphor of an extinction event alive in my mind for the last 4 years as i see what has happened uh, you know, the rollbacks of the rights of women, uh, the rights of queer people, the literal physical assaults and murders of the bodies of, of black people and people of color. The only way to get through is that uh, high in the sky perspective that this could be an extinction event mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and fingers crossed Uh, that it is. So those are the lenses through which I'm viewing the attempted coup. And I very much come down on the side as a thinker and as a mother that there have to be the most severe consequences. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. The Democratic Party of the United States has now, they're taking a discursive line that they have throughout the campaign of coming together and of healing And I hope that they understand very well that as we saw in a place like Rwanda, right, where there was genocide and civil war, no healing comes before there's accountability. Yeah, absolutely. So before we do our our ceremonies of uh, reconciliation, uh, whatever they may be people have to be punished. Mm-hmm. I'm very, I'm very clear about that as mm-hmm. a mom. Well, with and no as, consequences, as, yes. 
with no consequences, what then this kind of thing, it, it's like open season mm-hmm. on, you don't like something, you can just do whatever you want. And yeah. And I, I think it's, it's so interesting that part of Donald Trump's campaign platform was telling people I could, did he say I could shoot someone on yep. Fifth Avenue and nothing, nothing would happen mm-hmm. to me. And by doing that, he sort of corralled uh, the Marlboro Man vote, uh, which has now turned into the anti-masker vote. (laughs) Those are sort of two faces of this imagined, virile, impenetrable masculinity that he's played with. Um, And at the time that he said that, now we fast forward to the time where there's a moment where we have to decide as a society and as a culture how, what, price he will pay for having done this so we're at a crossroads and i'm fascinated and uh not a little bit frightened about what will happen next i mean so well said and i think you know from for us watching it's been especially for me and i think you and i have talked about this the the overarching question has been what will it take what is it going to take for people to understand who and what he is. And the only, like you were talking on your best day, the thought is this is what it'll take. And what it's taken is, is this the turning point. This is the tipping point. Well, it's, it's right. a, it's a convenient out for people in government who supported him and when, and well, this is, mm. and, and they've lost. And it's like, crap, we backed the wrong horse. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we, oh, you know what? I always had deep misgivings, but <laughs> this was this was the thing that put me over the edge, right? I'm going to resign as the Secretary of Education right. or as Special Envoy to Northern Ireland now, 10 days before inauguration. Like, Yeah, this is giving the American people a very close up opportunity to examine what collaboration looks like (laughs) and what complicity looks like. Mm -hmm. Usually, you know, I think in America, when we, in the United States, excuse me, uh, when we learn about that, uh, we think about Nazi Germany, for example, Mm -hmm. and we can't possibly identify, we think, with people who let this happen, right? Mm -hmm. A mass murder on an unimaginable scale, but it started with supporting a leader for whom many uh, Germans had said, well, this is reprehensible, this whole uh, racial cleansing stuff, but the economic stuff uh, that, you know, I, and and you don't get to pick and choose. And (laughs) collaboration is a slow process. And unfortunately, it draws on some very deep, I think, evolved uh, social mechanisms mm-hmm. that come out, but you know, contingent on their ecology, but it almost hijacks collaboration, almost hijacks our software. I think uh, mm. that we evolved as cooperative breeders, mm-hmm. right? And it sort of hijacks our impulse to look out for others as if they're ourselves and our own to this sinister switch of collaborating, cooperating uh, with basically dictatorship. So I have called this man a despot since day one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what he is. He's a despot who leverages mm-hmm. off patrilineal, patrilocal, and white privilege. I wanted to say something through the lens of anthropology and primatology. I often hear 
especially white men, misuse the term alpha male. <laughs> and I, you know, I put my energy only in really specific places. But <laughs> on this podcast, let me take the opportunity to tell everybody listening that no guy who describes himself on social media or Tinder as an alpha male is actually one. <laughs> Alpha males happen in packs of dogs. We know now from emergent data that they don't happen in primates in the same way. And, and you could argue that there are no alpha mates, uh, sorry, alpha males in non-human primates at all because an alpha male is simply a male uh, who learns to lead, if you will, if you even want to call it that, through cooperation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So there are no alpha males. There are, there are males, and in the case of bonobos, our closest non-human <laughs> primate relatives, females, who learn to cooperate and collaborate. And so when I hear or sense people admiring that Trump is some sort of inevitable alpha male, all I can think of is how bankrupt that metaphor is, how how not apt the analogy is and how he's the worst alpha male on the planet uh, because, (laughs) because he's alienated so many people Mm. and he doesn't understand cooperative endeavors, you know? So he, he only understands forcing collaboration. So observing him is a really interesting test case for observing the swerve uh, from our evolutionary heritage (laughs) as cooperative breeders to just how that can change in different ecologies. But I have hope that he went too far. Finally, Jesus, Mm -hmm. what does it take? I guess it doesn't (laughs) take ripping children away from their parents and putting them in concentration camps. You know, I use these analogies very carefully as a woman married to a Jewish man and as the mother of two Jewish children. I, I think through carefully which analogies to use. And I see him as a terrible dictator who is responsible for a genocide of the hundreds of thousands of people in the United States who will die of COVID mm-hmm. due to his negligence mm-hmm. and his terrible example. And it shows us just how Beatrice, in your interview notes, you use the term toxic masculinity, and I've started using the term lethal masculinity instead um, to describe, you know, anti-scientific sentiment in any community, including the wellness community, the yoga community, young boys who feel compelled to drive fast and, and take tremendous risks or take drugs. You know, we know from data that young men feel pressured to do these things even more than young women do. So I've started calling it lethal masculinity. And I think that Trump is one of our best examples of what lethal masculinity is. And he's got to go and he's got to go. And as we discussed, he has to be made an example. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. He has to be cast out. You know, when we were cooperative breeders, if you weren't cooperative, (laughs) <laughs> um, being cast out meant social death, and it also could mean physical death. Quite literally, yeah. Yeah. So we have de- we have developed a deep, deep groove uh, for cooperation and for empathy, and for looking out for others. And he did a lot of hard work to knock us out of that groove, <laughs> and he has to pay for that too. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a reason that solitary confinement is the worst punishment there is, right? Good point. So, yeah, good point. It, 
it's it's so insane that we're talking about this because you know I wanted to ask you a few years ago I heard you on Chris Ryan's podcast talking about the number of women in in the 2016 election who had voted for Trump 52 and, or 53% depending <laughs> on the 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 polls that you looked at and you had had spoken about it at that time and this time can you compare the demographics and the numbers with respect to women during the 2020 election and Mm -hmm. what what are the mechanics behind an entire demographic of people who would vote for someone who has so obviously and you know without hesitation Mm. been so against every one of their interests can you Mm. speak to that a little bit what what is that about that is for a social scientist. That is at once a delicious and a completely heartbreaking question, <laughs> and so important. I think so. Fifty-two to fifty-three percent of white women voted for Trump. White women voters voted for Trump mm-hmm. in twenty sixteen. In twenty twenty, fifty-five percent. Wow. Of white women who voted voted for Donald Trump, and I really believe the activist and sexologist Michelle Hope, who calls herself an unapologetic black sexologist. I really believe her analysis here, which is that these women simply voted their race first and foremost. Mm -hmm. There's some evidence that it was uneducated, relatively uneducated women in the U.S. uh, who voted for Trump. I haven't parsed that data carefully enough, but from having spent years uh, studying the richest people in Manhattan, uh, (laughs) I know that those women uphold retrograde ideologies uh, that aren't in their best interest all the time. So Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if many, a shocking number of educated white women also voted for Trump, but I have to, I have to look at those uh, data points. That said, what I said to Chris Ryan and what I have been saying since is that these women have the privilege of deciding I am going to align myself with what, you know, as an anthropologist, I really hesitate to use the word patriarchy, (laughs) but Hey, if the stinking shoe fits, put it on. Um, (laughs) They were able to make this cynical decision. And I want to point out that some people who migrated to the United States in spite of Trump's anti-immigrant racist discourse and, and practices and beliefs, something like at the time that I had a look, one in three uh, Latinx male voters voted for Trump, right? Just like women knowing that he was a sexual harasser, a sexual abuser, a sexual assaulter aligned themselves with Trump. So I believe that what uh, the people who migrated to the United States and voted for him in spite of his anti-immigrant policies, which they knew would break up their very families in Mm -hmm. some instances, Mm -hmm. or the families of their friends and community, there was such a strong impulse to say, I'm not that kind of immigrant. Right. I'm this kind of immigrant. Okay, so the situation for white women was they had this privilege that certainly people who migrated here did not have the same kind of privilege. A lot of them had male privilege, but they didn't have uh, white privilege. So what these women were deciding was 
basically between two versions of femininity in 2016. The one version of femininity was Hillary Clinton, who Mm -hmm. Trump continually referred to Hillary as crooked. And at first I thought he meant crooked in terms of criminal doings, right? Which is usually how the term crooked is used. But eventually it started hitting my ear and my training that what he meant was that she had swerved from a really traditional gender script as well, right? Mm. She was crooked in that way. She wasn't on the straight and narrow. There's a straight and narrow path to salvation for white women. And it is align yourself with Donald Trump or be fucking annihilated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now I'm not saying women didn't do it with glee and greed and selfishness, but I do believe that that was the life history trade-off that those women decided to make. And they decided to stand shoulder to shoulder with a despot who hated immigrants, who hated and still hates immigrants, who Mm -hmm. hated and still hates people of color, uh, who has a particular animosity toward black people and a sharpened, sharpened animosity toward women. Mm -hmm. And they made that cynical decision. So the one version was crooked femininity, Hillary Mm -hmm. Clinton, what did he say? She can't keep a man. She's fat in her pantsuit. She could never wear a dress. The usual demeaning language that he uses for women who don't toe the Trump line. Mm-hmm. And then the other version of femininity that was available for white women to identify with in the 2016 election was the sort of femme body decorous, decorative femininity embodied quite literally by Melania Trump, right? Mm -hmm. Of whom we saw pictures on a bear rug, naked, bear rug, excuse me, naked on a bear (laughs) rug in like a private plane. Um, She was a model. I'm not putting down women for presenting their bodies however they want, but I have a very specific point to make here, obviously, which is Melania sort of embodies this idea that women are there to serve male power. Mm -hmm. They are the handmaids, if you will, to the patriarchy. And they are, they're the best they can hope for is to prop these men up and they make this cynical and racist decision to do that, to align themselves with him rather than take the risk of being annihilated. So I'm not pardoning them at all. I'm looking them square in the eye and calling them what they are, which is opportunists. And, you know, again, this hijacks our, our software because women evolved, especially as extremely canny sexual and social strategists. And anybody who's interested in reading more about that can read my book, Primates of Park Avenue, but go to the text that really informs that, which is anything written by Sarah Blaffer Hurdy. Um, so it's almost like he hijacked that evolved software, if we can refer to that, of women to you know, be very strategic in their sexual and social uh, strategies. And so that is what those white women did. They stood shoulder to shoulder uh, with this man in his white supremacy, in his misogyny. And that was a choice he presented to them. Now, there was the option of just stepping out of the choice entirely and saying these are false choices, right? 55% of white women who voted didn't step outside the false choice. (laughs) Now about 2020, I can only surmise as a social scientist that what happened was that those women said, Hey, things are pretty good for me. Mm -hmm. Right. And we like to think of women as well. They're socialized to care about other people and be caretakers and put themselves last. 
I don't think so. I think a lot of white women still vote the way their husbands tell them to, and they still stand shoulder to shoulder with white supremacy because it's in their best interest, they think. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. there's that, you know. Sarah Hardy has written about, you know, women having to make these kind of trade-offs, but these women didn't do it with a gun to their head. Mm -hmm. They weren't going to starve. They did it in identification. It felt better to identify with a man who annihilates women and people on the wrong side of power than it did to identify with the woman who might go down. And this time, like I said, this time I think it was a decision that, hey, things are pretty good for me, right? Mm-hmm. Let me let me, let me, me look past the sexual harassment. It didn't happen to me. Mm-hmm. And that just shows you how thoroughly he has knocked us out of the groove of altruism. Mm-hmm. It's in there. That groove is so deep. And it takes it takes repeated messaging to knock us out of that groove. And he did it really successfully. We were talking about this morning, just about how he could get away. Any one of the things that came out when he campaigned back in 2016, up until this election, would have knocked any other politician out of out of contention. They would have had mm-hmm. to have made a public apology and then mm-hmm. quietly faded from public life. Mm-hmm. The Access mm-hmm. Hollywood tapes, calling mm-hmm. Mexicans murderers and rapists, like mm-hmm. any of these kinds of this such strong language. And then of course, when I, when I were confronted about it being like, oh, you're being so horrible to me. Like, why, mm-hmm. why are you being so vicious and nasty and right. all this counter aggressive language? The performance of aggrievement. Yeah. And it doesn't sound very alpha. Well, right. <laughs> yeah. but, but, but you see in terms of who he idolizes and who he holds up as an ideal leader in other despots and dictators and actual strong men, right? Mm-hmm. What he aspires to. He is an actual dictator and he is an actual strong man, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, my friend Ruth Ben Giot writes about, wrote a book about the strong man and, and Trump sort of aping the pageantry, mm-hmm. the speech patterns, mm-hmm. so the actions um, of a strong man. For, for the- sure he is that. And the bookend of the inauguration, which was where, where, you know, most inauguration speeches, they talk about hope and the future and positivity. And it was carnage and annihilation on American streets and all that. And it's Mm -hmm. like, well, that's pretty much where we are four years later. Yeah, this is where we are four years later that he has to be held accountable or we Mm. will find ourselves in an even greater catastrophe. I wanted to just address something you guys pertinent to the point you made, you know, again, just always looking at ecology and the role that ecology plays in social behavior. Uh, When we look at how a group of men that I unapologetically call Bernie bros, um, you would think that misogyny in the United States comes only from the right. Mm -hmm. There is a hard strain of misogyny among red pill men who don't necessarily have political affiliations. And there is a hard, hard, unexplored strain of misogyny, a blight of misogyny among men who describe themselves as progressive. And all you have to do to understand that is look to male Bernie supporters and their loathing of Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. and saying, oh no, she's a shitty candidate. Oh no, she's a horrible speaker. They're not progressive enough. Dude, you're not doing nothing but hating your fucking mom. Right. <laughs> That's what you're doing. Yeah. Don't fucking dress it up in progressive bullshit. Say what it is. 
you hate those women because you hate the idea of women in power. Mm-hmm. Spare me your bullshit about she's not a good candidate and Nancy Pelosi isn't radical enough. She fucking tore up the speech behind Trump's back <laughs> and has been has has been a burden to him since day one. Mm-hmm. Don't I cannot conscience anymore. Men on the left, men in the wellness space men in yoga and their misogyny. Mm. It is as sinister as Trump's. It worked in synergy with it. The left, men on the left and their hatred and some women too, their unexplored, unrepentant hatred of Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi and their assertion that Hillary was the same as Trump. Those people have some splaining to do. Just like people in the Department of Defense have splaining to do about mm-hmm. why the National Guard was there. Progressives who harbor misogynist beliefs and deny it helped to make this catastrophe mm-hmm. happen. They mm-hmm. literally didn't vote. Mm-hmm. Right. And a lot of them, I know a lot of guys who identify as progressive. I know those motherfuckers went in and voted for Trump. <laughs> because misogyny often trumps everything else. I was on somebody's Twitter t- t- timeline. You know, sometimes I will explore the Twitter timeline of somebody who says uh, something really degrading or demeaning to me or to another person on Twitter. And I was looking at several. I had tweeted something about Bernie supporters, you know, failing to turn out to defeat Trump in the 2016 election. And first of all, there was so much defensiveness about it, but it was so utterly toxic and misogynist. One Bernie bro that I had said, you know, misogyny fueled these Bernie supporters uh, refusing to support Hillary Clinton. He literally responded to my tweet with a meme, a video meme of somebody saying, fuck you, bitch. Wow. Like I just accused you of misogyny and helping bring the nation down with your misogyny and this. Okay, perfect. Thank you for proving my point. Yeah, th- right. Sometimes they make it so easy. Like, yeah. yeah. So I have been really, and I want to talk about something else. I'm sorry if this isn't on the docket, but if I could just no. say, because I think it's really important. Absolutely. A woman, a journalist in the U.S. wrote a really, really important piece that was in In Style magazine. So she will be derided for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the piece was brilliant. It was called We Have to Talk About White Supremacy in Yoga. Oh, yes. And she got into it. She got into the links between anti-maskers, Trump supporters, people who don't believe in science, people who tell you that the vaccine is a conspiracy, people who tell you that the deep state is out to get you. These people were anti-vaxxers in the first place. And there mm-hmm. they are in the wellness industry, mm-hmm. spreading this shit, terrifying the people in their yoga classes, browbeating people with bad science, scaring people about vaccinating their children and getting a vaccine themselves, playing a part in fueling the pandemic, mm-hmm. collaborators, Trump collaborators. We don't just have a problem in the Trump administration. We have a problem with misogyny and white supremacy among self-described progressives. Mm-hmm. And it's a real issue. So I really recommend that article. We need to talk about white supremacy and yoga because it's not just about yoga. It's about how the wellness space has spawned paranoid mm-hmm. ideologies about government 
and how the wellness space has spawned bullshit claims about <laughs> my civil liberties are being infringed on if I have to wear a mask. No, motherfucker. Stay home and don't wear a mask. If you want to be out and about, all people are asking you to be is an altruist. You can't even do that. Stay <laughs> home stop screaming about your civil liberties i hear this all the time from people in these culty wellness spaces these men with their kettleballs and their paleo diets going on about how their civil liberties are being infringed on uh, because they're being told to stay home and they're being told to wear a mask you wouldn't know white guy an infringement on your civil liberties if it bit you in the ass you wouldn't know it your white privilege is so comprehensive and thoroughgoing. <laughs> you never have to worry about it. That you think you're being persecuted when people ask you to wear a mask so their grandma doesn't die. Thanks mm -hmm. for showing us who you are. But boy, we have white people. We have some cleanup to do. We mm. need to clean up this mess, white people in the United States. That's all I can say. That always drives me bananas when people freak out about having to wear a mask to go into a grocery store. I'm like, you have to wear pants to go into the store. <laughs> nobody's nobody's freaking out about the fact that their civil liberties are being trampled on because they have to wear pants. Exactly. And I really worry about these men who are into uh, psychedelics, health, keto diets. You notice how they- Biohacking. But yeah, whatever the fuck. Have you ever noticed if it's about how they can be more powerful for mm -hmm. longer? Right. Have you, have you ever heard them say anything except some bullshitty baggy rubric about the divine feminine? Have they ever said an articulate, committed word about caring about black women and women of color literally dying from systemic racism in childbirth or from sleeping in their apartments? No, because mm -hmm. they don't care about that. They care about living forever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They care about extending their white privilege into some hypothetical ever after. So it's a real issue. And I'm pointing my finger at these cultures within the United States that have flourished and that uh, are, are great uh, nesting grounds uh, for, for, for white supremacy and for misogyny. Uh, they help. They, they're keeping Trump in office. Mm -hmm. I just want to say one other thing. There was a protester at the Capitol and he, to me, uh, he had all the markers. I am not a psychologist, but to me, his behavior looked like paranoid schizophrenia and he was uh, wearing like bison horns. He's all over the he's place all right over. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a shame that he's, that the visual image of him is uh, sucking the attention away from the things that happened. I know, mm -hmm. I know why it's happening. Mm -hmm. He's so mediagenic. But to go deeper into the image, uh, when there was video of him talking, his, what I believe was paranoid schizophrenia, his psychosis had a deep overlay of wellness talk and mysticism. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about what some women come onto my Instagram posts and talk about and post about. Um, he was talking about um, the highest vibration. And now I'm going to be paraphrasing. I didn't really have a chance to listen to him more than once, but he was talking about the highest frequency, the highest vibration, you know, rising to be your best self so that you understand what's going on in the minds of others. That could have been freaking Tony Robbins, mm -hmm. right? That could have been, that guy could just be Tony Robbins on acid. And yet people, <laughs> people pay Tony Robbins, a sexual harasser, 
thousands of dollars to listen to his hucksterism and to have have him tell them that they can walk across coals and then they get third degree burns on their <laughs> feet, right? Guilty, guilty, guilty. Sorry, I uh, got, took us on a little bit of a tangent talking about that man in his costume, but I want to just talk about the culpability of the wellness space mm-hmm. um, and the alternative medicine space and the conspiracy theories that they throw down about, for example, vaccines. Mm-hmm. Those conspiracy theories, plus their indifference, they're never too, too many of them, the men never taking a stance about feminism, never identifying as intersectional feminists, never supporting intersectional feminists, just liking this divine feminine bullshit, which doesn't mean anything. Sorry to anybody who's offended by that. But what did you come here for? (laughs) Um, So they helped build the house of Trump. Mm -hmm. It's disturbing. It, it is. And it, and, and it, when you think about it in the wellness space, it seems like such an unlikely place it seems like, for I mean, I misogyny so and privilege. Yeah. And, and, you know, that that's, mm. that's what makes it so, cause you think, where do I go? Like where I mean, Beatrice, you and I probably went there for shelter mm-hmm. years ago mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. we were sick of paternalism and misogyny and medicine, uh, when we were sick of, you know, being forced maybe into childbirth in a way that was most convenient for doctors into Mm -hmm. a medicalized childbirth when it wasn't necessary. By the way, I had an epidural at one centimeter for one of my kids. So like no judgments about how anybody uh, gives birth. But I have also (laughs) noticed in the doula space, this sinister stuff. It's it's all very well and good to talk about the divine feminine. It doesn't mean anything to me as a social scientist, but I appreciate that for some women and particularly women of color, you know, I appreciate and understand looking for models of strength, right? Mm -hmm. Particularly given the black maternal health crisis and how uh, women, black women are dying in childbirth and so are black babies. I don't disrespect anyone's wanting to have models of and, and strategies to be more empowered when they go into, for example, childbirth. But I have been gobsmacked by natural childbirth educators, white ones, jumping on this anti-vaccine train, jumping on this, you're violating my civil liberties if you tell me that I have to stay home for a while and have to wear a mask if I go outside. I mm-hmm. know that I'm kind of beating a dead horse here, but it's really important to me. And I think that everyone listening should read the article we have to talk about white supremacy and yoga. I'm, I'm going to throw a link in our show notes so people yeah, can, can great, find it. Mm-hmm. Great, because I just want to say many people, probably like the three of us, looked to alternative medicine and looked to wellness as a progressive space. But look at the blind spot, just like the mm-hmm. blind spot against a lo- among a lot of Bernie supporters. The blind spot is in misogyny. So, and, and in the case of the wellness space, uh, racism. Yes. Well, and I just, I just wanted to pivot. I know we, we don't have a lot of time, mm-hmm. but I wanted to, I did want to speak to untrue and your mm-hmm. research around right. that. And that, you know, we were speaking a lot about misogyny today in the places that you don't expect to find it. Mm-hmm. And, and how um, white supremacy and misogyny just need each other. Mm-hmm. They, right? they do. They're just they do. so <laughs> interwoven and, and same with anti-science, right? Wherever there's anti-science, there's there misogyny. Is, there is really likely to be both misogyny and racism. I've mm-hmm. seen it again and again. And Carrie Jenkins talks about that too. Carrie Jenkins gives lectures where she she's openly polyamorous and she gives lectures where she 
projects onto a screen when we could do lectures in person. I hope she's <laughs> doing them in her Zoom uh, mm-hmm. lectures now. She projects onto the screen DMs that she's received from people who don't agree with her lifestyle. Oh. <laughs> um, you don't have a right to agree or not agree with her lifestyle. So, And she projects up messages that she gets. And one of the messages was something like, you're a cum dumpster for gooks. Okay. So um, she is in, at the time that she was describing these DMs to me and using them as a teaching tool, she was in a relationship. She was married to one man who who is Asian and had a a boyfriend uh, who was ethnically Asian as well. And this is in Canada, which we think of as a land of enlightenment. I don't know how many of her messages were coming from Americans and how many were coming from Canadians. And she very dispassionately analyzed this really painful message, you're an Asian cum dumpster, by talking about how, you know, where you see this kind of misogyny and rage about women inventing a relationship and (laughs) sexual and social strategy that serves their desires and serves their self-interest the misogyny the backlash mm-hmm. of that intersecting with racism and it was just such a great she, she just made such a great case for what bell hooks and kimberly cranshaw have been telling us for decades now so i i really encourage people to also look at the work of carrie jenkins and i'm so sorry that i interrupted you beatrice oh no that's okay <laughs> untrue was my game changer and, and I know that, you know, reading through that and reading about how people responded to you with the kind mm-hmm. of work that you do and the research that you mm-hmm. do, you used the term slut by proxy. Whereas just because you uh, were yeah. studying non-monogamy, right. that made you a slut by proxy, which mm-hmm. is so... Because because our theme seems to be misogyny today, <laughs> I find that yeah. so fascinating because like that's I don't feel like that is put upon anyone else. Like if you study serial killers, nobody thinks that you're a serial killer. It's a good point. I had never <laughs> thought of that. So like how it's like you know promising. go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, it's just and and you know, on on Twitter you were referred to as the cheat pass lady. Mm. Like, how do you deal with and because you are an attractive woman, you are an outspoken woman, you're very well read, you're you have that thirty thousand foot view, as you were saying, you know, you're not just a, a, a niche academic. It it's very broad, your, mm-hmm. your, your scope. So I, how do you deal with that kind of, that kind of rage and misogyny oh. and, and that response to your work? Well, okay. Uh, thank you for this question. Cause I think that it's relevant to any woman who sort of steps outside uh, the narrow lane that she's been told is her lane. And I think especially right now of like, Patrice Coulors, who's one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, and how she stepped out of her lane just by being one of the people who helped come up with the sentence, Black Lives Matter. It seems a very basic thing to assert, but uh, she just had to take, she and her colleagues who founded Black Lives Matter had to take so much flack, and it was because they were stepping outside the cultural container, and that was seen 
as a tremendous disruption, a simple sentence that made all the sense in the world and wasn't seemed not to be asking a lot, seemed to be making a very basic point. It was extremely disruptive to the social order. So they were treated like criminals. All right. So my first uh, response to that is so many women have it so much worse than me. Their work is so much more radical and dangerous. They're actual activists putting their bodies on the line. You know, I learned from one of my teachers, the um, doula and black life conservationist, Latham Thomas, I learned from her that everybody's ministry is not activism. And she always said, don't call me an activist. I'm not doing that dangerous thing that a black woman does of putting her actual body out on the street and on the line. So Mm. I think about activists who are much braver than I am and women who have really just had it so much worse, particularly because they're black women and women of color and, you know, just so relatively protected I am by my blue eyes and my blonde hair and my white skin. Um, So that's kind of the context. That said, you know, as a white woman, I have a lot of privilege and I'm hyper aware of it, but I'm also a woman. So as much privilege as being a white woman gives me, there is still that, uh, the woman problem, right? (laughs) And that the the, the lane is still, uh, particularly after four years of Trump, we've seen how the lane narrowed, uh, even for white women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even the dummies who voted for Trump have seen their lane narrowed. I don't know if they've noticed. <laughs> I did just call them dummies. That's a very precise term in social science. <laughs> yes. It's not. See, it's, a, so, it's so good right now that I don't have an institutional affiliation. I mean, right. right. So I think, uh, Beatrice, maybe your question was, how do I deal with the haters? So the first thing is that I tell myself, well, let me learn from these, the example of these women who the stakes were so much higher uh, and they were in literal physical danger. And they were not just dealing with misogyny, they were dealing with racism too. So I look to their example and that is inspiring and gives me a sense of perspective. The second thing I do with haters, particularly with this book, you know, my last book, Primates of Park Avenue, was about motherhood and wealth. And people really wanted it to be like, Gossip Girl, or I think they just thought it was going to be like Sex in the City with Babies. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for saying that so much better and being on top of it. Yeah, <laughs> they thought it would be Sex in the City with Babies. And then a lot of people were just outraged. They were like, what is all this? What is all this science? Like, why is all the, what's this whole fucking chapter on the evolution of childhood and how childhood was inserted into the human calendar only a million years ago? And what is this stuff about? Why am I reading about how birds? raise their offspring but people still focused on the blonde they thought that because I was writing about skinny socialites and I was skinny and blonde I must be a skinny socialite right so there was a fair amount of anger about that then when I stepped into writing about sexuality and female sexuality and asserting that our dominant cultural narrative about female sexuality which has been written by white men is inaccurate and I'm going to write this Valentine to the scientists and and other experts, many of them women who are creating this new body of research about what female sexuality actually is. Then I really knew rage. Mm. And um, so I, 
had interviewed Sarah Hurdy for Untrue. Mm. And she told me something great. Uh, she told me that when she wrote The Langers of Abu and then The Woman That Never Evolved and she started refining her idea, which is now a mainstream idea in anthropology. At the time, it was so out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She started refining her idea that the reason uh, that female langers, first of all, the fact that female langers were like fuck bunnies, right? They were having sex with <laughs> males in the group. They were having sex with males outside the group. They were having sex with the males outside the group who would charge into the group and grab an infant from a mother and kill it with their long incisors, bite it uh, and kill it or, you know, and she saw infanticide going on in mammals, in this mammal species and in these langurs. And she also saw promiscuous in quotes, female sexual behavior. And she's a genius because Mm -hmm. she connected the dots Mm -hmm. And she said, I'm preaching to the choir here, and you guys know this, but maybe your listeners aren't familiar with the Langers of Abu and the woman that never evolved. But she she connected the dots and she said, female sexual strategies are strategic and promiscuous because the more males this female Langer has sex with, the more she reduces the risk of infanticide mm-hmm. happening to her offspring the more males she has persuaded. If I'm killing this one, I might be killing my own and Mm -hmm. and just Mm. really messing uh, with my own reproductive success. So um, she connected the dots. And so she started talking about this idea. She had the audacity to uh, disrupt this narrative that females of all species are inherently naturally monogamous because they can become pregnant. And she was like, no, it's precisely that they can become pregnant that is driving them to promiscuity. And it's not like they have any grand scheme. They're doing it because it feels good. Right. Okay, then, wow, bring bring the, the rain. Yeah. So Oil she, she, yeah, she told me in an interview and she allowed me to put it in my book and she's talked about it in another interview. So I'm not uh, spilling any secrets or confidences. I wouldn't do that. But she told me that when she started talking about this idea um, and presenting it at conferences, that female promiscuity is pragmatic mm-hmm. and that it is, uh, but, it, but that it is motored by pleasure. Right. We know that at least six species of macaques, it's probably documented more macaque species now Mm -hmm. uh, have orgasms. Uh, We know that our closest non-human primate relatives, bonobos and chimps, female orgasm is a very real thing. We know that female orgasm, because of that evidence, we know that it is an ancient pre-hominin adaptation. um, If you're an adaptationist, some people in evolutionary biology uh, (laughs) Anyway, we, it's a little too technical to get into. But um, so she started putting this idea out in conferences in the 70s. And she was approached by a male, either anthropologist or primatologist, who said to her, because she had given this talk about how among these langers, female promiscuity was pragmatic. It was a social strategy. In, in the end, it warded off infanticide threats, uh, infanticide threats, but the motor was pleasure. And he came up to her, a man very respected in the field, very much a promulgator of the idea uh, since completely disproven that females are more naturally monogamous 
and that <laughs> alpha males are all that and that this is the way it's meant to be. He said to her, so Sarah, Sarah. Yeah. Yes. What happened to the Dr. Hardy? So Sarah, what you're saying is that you're horny. <laughs> nice face palm. <laughs> that was a big face palm that, uh, that V just did. So what was happening there? Of course, being Sarah Hardy, she broke down the primate social behavior of that encounter. And she said that both, basically she was being accused of proxent. The, the only weapon and the most powerful weapon that this man had against her was to basically accuse her of promiscuity by proxy. <laughs> if she studied promiscuous female langers and gathered data and not only data, her idea was for your listeners who might not be aware, her idea was one of the most important ideas in the last century of evolutionary theory and evolutionary mm -hmm. biology. But what he said to her about it was, so Sarah, what you're saying is you're horny. Now, if she had been me, <laughs> she's so not. She's so, she's <laughs> she's the most, so not. <laughs> she's so, the most amazing person. She comes from a wealthy Texas oil family. She was expected to be a socialite. She has never said a bad word about another woman's work. She won't be drawn in. And she's so fair. She's such mm -hmm. a great scientist. She was. Just, she just said to me, it was the most mortifying moment of my life. In other words, it really worked. Mm -hmm. What he said really worked for a minute. He almost silenced her with the threat of, if you study the promiscuous behavior of female langers, you're a slut. Wow. <laughs> right? So that was almost an effective coercive strategy, right? Mm -hmm. Infantis infanticide, sexual selection teaches us that all of evolution, sexual selection theory teaches us that, you know, sexual selection is male strategy and female counter strategy and male strategy, right? Mm -hmm. So a male hamadryas baboon does eye flips at a female and bites her neck if she doesn't behave, but she still finds a way to fuck another male hamadryas baboon <laughs> while he's not looking. That's the female counter strategy, right? But he uses these coercive tactics. This male primate was using a coercive tactic at his fingertips, promiscuity by proxy. I can delegitimize everything you say by saying that you don't toe the line and you stepped out of your lane. <laughs> wow. So I always think of that story when some flat earther comes at me or I'm going to say something mean now, some angry, envious uh, male junior faculty member <laughs> who's in the fervent throes of uh, the replication crisis <laughs> goes after me and tells me my data is shit. My data are not shit. And I know that. But when, or, or like I said, a red pill person comes after me or a yoga woman comes after me and says, why aren't you spreading love and light about what Trump did yesterday? Why, why did you post this terrible thing about this man doing man spreading at Nancy Pelosi's desk? Why are you sowing discord between men and women instead of love? When I get any so the criticism comes from multiple directions, right? We were talking about the wellness industry and progressive Bernie people who are misogynists, and of course the right and the red pill people and the Trump people. So the criticism can come from multiple directions, and I just 
think of the example, like I said, of these other women. I think of the example of Sarah Hurdy. I'm not trying to be grandiose and say uh, suggest that I'm going to have ideas nearly as grand as and more as important as hers or the women who founded Black Lives Matter. I'm just saying that I learned from their example, and it's not that I turn the other cheek. It's that, like Carrie Jenkins, I look at the DM and I say, "How could I put this?" hateful dehumanizing dm on twitter how could i learn something from it about the social behavior of human primates in particular ecologies that's all i really learned that from sarah hurdy i i don't even know what to say can i say something else yes when you when you get the kind of hate and i get a no i get you know what i'm not gonna say that i'm not gonna i'm not gonna downplay the hate that that I sometimes get for writing about female sexuality and saying that the previous narrative about it is incorrect. And here, here are the data points that prove that. I'm not going to downplay the intensity of that hatred and criticism. But when you encounter that, it is literally confirmation mm-hmm. that you are disrupting the social order. And there could be no higher compliment <laughs> in a way than that hatred. But let's not downplay it. It's a really effective, coercive tactic. It's a really effective con- con- containment strategy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Hatred and threats toward people who would change the social order, people doing it much more radically than I am. And I so respect their example and don't want to compare my situation to theirs closely. No, and I, I think that's that's such a an incredible perspective to have where, you know, lots of people are like, but look at what's happening to me. And your, your perspective on that is so, so important. But I, but, you know, you talk about the hate that you get about it being, you know, what higher compliment and I will offer one, Mm -hmm. the women like me that read untrue and finally, even in my forties, finally felt like there is nothing wrong with me. This is how, Mm. this is how Mm. female desire works. I'm not, I'm not just a horny slut woman. You're not exceptional or logical. I mean, I've never been so relieved to not be exceptional, but. um, (laughs) Oh, I I didn't mean it that way. No, I know what you meant. No, I I know what you meant. Um, But right to, to, to have that, no, like like sex that dawn was for you yeah that was my that book. that, mm-hmm. that game changer to read that your research and your work and and the integration of that and to feel you know the overwhelming emotion is relief and mm-hmm. happiness to you know what it's okay it's okay for me to express my sexuality in that way because i'm not it's not pathological it's evolutionary biology. That's, that's the way we're built. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm just, oh, I didn't want to interrupt you, but no, I just I'm, wanted I'm to say, I just <laughs> wanted to say, well, thank you for those, that, that praise. And thank you for telling me how the book made you feel, because that's my mission. When people ask me, you know, it's in New York, you have to have an elevator pitch about who you are and what you do. And I always <laughs> say, um, I'm Dr. Wednesday Martin. And I'm a social scientist and a storyteller. And I use anthropology and evolutionary biology and feminist cultural criticism to help people understand why they feel what they feel, why they want what they want, 
and why they do what they do. Mm. That's it. That's my mission. But in doing that, there's nothing more powerful than using data to show people your response is normal. So my first, well, my second book, um, Step Monster, was about stepmothering. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to really engage with all the cultural just demeaning that happens to women who are stepmothers. And I wanted to approach stepmothering as a feminist issue. Right. So I drew on the cross-cultural data. I drew on the evolutionary biology of uh, alloparenting behaviors in different species. And I interviewed actual women. And let me tell you, if there's, if there's a group of unhappy people, it's stepmothers. They've been really misrepresented and dragged. And I realized after I wrote that book, so many women came to me and said, it's all very well and good when my psychologist tells me that my feelings are normal. It's another level when you have collected data, studies, science, and social science that shows me that what I'm experiencing is well within the range of normal. Mm. Um, so I was like, wow. And like, I just got so much loyalty from those women Just you would have thought I invented sliced bread when I said that we need to look at stepmothering as a feminist issue and and about power relations in households and about gender scripting. So when I set out to write my next book, it was really important to me, Beatrice, that I use science and social science to help people, especially people who identify as women understand themselves better, understand their motivations better, understand the worlds that they were living in better, understand their feelings better. And then when it came to sex rather than motherhood, this is when it's really powerful. Look, you can be a sex positive person in the sex ed space. And I love the sex positive movement. Although let me tell you, it needs to be decolonized and thank God uh, for the black women and women of color decolonizing the sex positive movement. I guess that's a discussion for another, (laughs) you know, an essay or or something that those women are hopefully writing and have written about decolonizing the sex positive space. But when you're in the sex positive space, it's one thing to just tell women uh, you're normal and sluttiness or whatever you're however you're describing yourself having a sex drive that you think is higher than it's supposed to be or lower than your male partner wants it to be or your female partner wants it to be you know the range of normal is so wide when it comes to sexuality because we evolved as flexible sexual strategists but there's nothing like giving women data Mm -hmm. that their sexuality is normal to set them free you know that's really it's really what i hope to do i really hope to use social science to help set women free about their mothering practices, their stepmothering practices, uh, their sexuality, because data speak (laughs) more loudly than people simply supporting you and lifting you up Mm -hmm. because they feel like, and know, and, and they feel like it's the right thing to do. Science makes a difference. It's real. And so much. <laughs> so much. I was just going to say, I think, I think that's like the perfect place. Yeah. Great. To like, yeah. uh, like science makes a difference. Yeah. Science like is real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't science be a dick. Re- wear your mask. <laughs> yes. Oh, right. I love that. There's nothing <laughs> yes. emasculating about 
wearing a mask. In fact, we can loop into sort of retrograde ideology about men being gallant and being gentlemen. There's nothing more masculine than wearing a mask to protect vulnerable <laughs> older women. <laughs> You know, as an older woman to Dante, there's nothing sexier than seeing him in a mask. <laughs> Wait, we didn't even talk about that. <laughs> I know. What? Masks and condoms and all. <laughs> we didn't, but we didn't talk about age difference. We didn't talk about older women and younger men. Mm -hmm. There's so much to say, right? I, but thank you for your example and for being open about that. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I mean, I, I guess we'll have to do 2.0 at some point. Uh, I absolutely. We'll have to do that. Well, or you can just write something like uh, the anthropologist Anthropologist Trina Orchard has been writing a lot about uh, younger men and older women, and I've been mm -hmm. really enjoying that. You have to write something as well. I may, maybe we can collaborate. <laughs> <laughs> she she's up near us. She's so. she's close to us actually geographically. So oh right, Trina, mm -hmm. uh, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah she's so up that, at a university in Ontario. Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. Okay, great. Yeah, well, so. I love her work, and I love you for being open um, about older women. And younger men because it so easily gets conscripted into this weird discourse about how well that's so unusual because men evolved to want nubile uh young women with super pointy tits i'm for all i know your tits are super pointy from all that jujitsu <laughs> I, I i i love them however they are um and so thank you, well. you. thank you but yeah right so I love how the commonplaceness, the, the sheer just high incidence, uh, nobody's cared enough to actually uh, get the data about it. But anecdotally, I know that younger men with older women is a very common and desired relationship configuration not just for many women, right? We have this image of women being cougars and pursuing younger men. <laughs> I know from what people are telling me and from young guys DMing me, uh, <laughs> so funny to write about what I write about, that I know how many young men go out in pursuit of mm -hmm. older women precisely because they're older. Mm -hmm. And that really flips the script, the rigid, incorrect script we've been fed mm -hmm. about the evolutionary biology of desire. We evolved the sexual flexible strategist. It only makes sense not to be so heteronormative, but it only makes sense, for example, that men wouldn't just want younger women, that men would want older women too. We evolved as basically sexual super freaks, um, mm -hmm. meaning that individually we're capable of a lot of different kinds of desires. And as a species, uh, we have a wide range of appetites mm -hmm. that are normal. So thanks for your example. It suggests that sex isn't just about reproduction. It's about social bonding and pleasure. And there's that, that the, the traditional narrative is that why would men want to date older women they should be they want to date just who, whoever can make the best babies for them. Clearly, that's not the only strategy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Clearly, because... there are a lot of people who don't give a shit about making. Babies. No. <laughs> so to your point, I mean, we try. Yes. Yeah. We try. Right. We, we, yeah, we know from the existence of the human female clitoris that as long as there has been human sexuality, it has been recreational for female 
hominins, likely pre-hominins, because mm-hmm. look at non-human female primates, and for female uh, Homo sapiens. So, I think that's a a great point that you made for us to end on. <laughs> it's fantastic, Dr. Yeah. Martin. Thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to talk to us. This has been amazing and i i'm i have more questions now than i have answers actually there's so much more (laughs) so much more to talk about i I was supposed to i was supposed to answer a lot of questions but thank you so much for having me no no this has been fantastic it's been amazing yeah that's great (laughs) all right thank you so much for having me i appreciate it bye-bye bye I hope everybody enjoyed that episode. We certainly enjoyed it. It, it, It's it's amazing to talk to someone who has such a breadth of knowledge Mm -hmm. and And so articulates and yeah is able to synthesize all of that information and create these really compelling arguments is the wrong word because it sounds like she's angry but but just really compelling thoughts and analysis on she on, did on whatever she, topic we're talking she about. did say like that was a bit of a rant but we were very pleased to yeah. be that venue to to receive that rant because i think it she made so many important points on this so how can people get in touch with us where can they find us well first of all we are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms yes so you can uh, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcast or on Spotify or on Google Music, wherever you get Stitcher, I think, also Podbean, wherever you get your stuff, you can find us. <laughs> uh, you can visit our website, www.cheatingonfear.com. We also uh, can be reached by email. The email address is info at cheatingonfear.com. And then we're also on the socials. So Instagram yep. at cheatingonfear and Twitter. At Cheating on Fear. Correct. And you can DM us there too. Yep. And we love to hear your feedback. People are so great about reaching out and and giving us feedback and their opinions. And please feel free to go and leave us a review. Share the episode if you... Subscribe if you want to be updated when we drop new episodes. Yeah. Fantastic. And you know what? You know, drop day is always my favorite because I love the feedback that we get in the the days (laughs) following drops of new episodes and stuff like that. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening. See you guys in the next one. Bye.